Scott. Thanks, ladies. Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this night that we can come together around this, your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how precious your word is, how um, dependable the truth of your word is. And we pray, Father God, tonight as we look into your word yet again that you would give us understanding. Lord, we pray that you would take your word and by the Spirit of God you'd apply it to our hearts and lives and, Lord, challenge us, encourage us and uh, just meet our needs through your word this night. Uh, give me wisdom, I pray, as I preach that I might be used of you. And Lord, tonight may we leave this place in your praise and we know that we'll be in your presence. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir Isaac Newton once made this comment. He said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then to finding a smoother pedal, a pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered before me. You know, as we study the Romans chapter 8, which we've almost finished, Sometimes you can feel much the same as you study this chapter because Romans chapter 8, you and I can feel that an ocean of spiritual truth spreads before us. And we can feel that whatever we grasp is but a pebble or a shell in comparison. Yet pebbles and shells, you know, may be beautiful. And even though we understand and retain a small portion of what this chapter teaches us, our souls are thrilled, and at least I trust and pray that's the case as we reflect now on these last few verses of Romans chapter 8 because we come to the last section of the chapter, the last section of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans before we look at the parenthetical section between Romans 9 through 11 about the nation of Israel, and we get to the practical section, chapter 12 through 16. And tonight as we come to this final section in this chapter, we find the emphasis of these few verses is the eternal security of the believer. As believers, we have here freedom from fear because there is no separation. The book started out with no condemnation and now it ends with no separation. There's no need to fear the past. There's no need to fear the present. There's no need to fear the future because we are secure in the love of Christ. And the Apostle Paul here gives to us five reasons why you and I cannot be separated from Christ. And if you're saved here tonight, or saved listening on tonight, then with assurance we can declare that we have eternal salvation, that we are eternally secure. And this passage makes it abundantly clear that you and I are eternally secure. And we are eternally secure because, firstly, God is for us. Look at verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? God be for us, who can be against us? Here's 
the Apostle about to sum up all that's been said so far in the book of Romans. You know, if we had the first three chapters of the book of Romans and we didn't have chapter 8 of Romans, we might believe that God was against us. It's a pretty bleak picture painted in the early part of this book. Indeed, sometimes like Jacob in Genesis 42 and verse 36, we may lament all things, all these things, sorry, all these things are against me. Because, you know, it's true at times that it may feel like everything's against us as believers, that the devil is working against us, the world is working against us, the people are working against us, the circumstances are overwhelming us, and you could list list after list of things that seem like you and I are under siege as believers. We feel like we're on the uh, end of some terrible things. And so Paul asks the question in verse 31, what shall we say then? to these things? What's the answer? What should we say about everything that's been said? What should we say about all the teaching of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8? What shall we say about these things? Though all may seek to oppose us, even though you and I might feel at times like everything's against us, the truth is it can, nothing can prevail against us. For, as he says in verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? And that's a glorious statement. In fact, if we read nothing else, if you finish the chapter there, that verse alone is a powerful verse. If God be for us, who can be against us? The truth is that God is working for you and for me. As believers, God is on our side. And we know that God is for us because God has a plan for your life and my life as believers to make us like his son. Look in verse 28. Of this chapter. For we know that all things work together to, for good. Them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for you and I. God has a plan for our lives. We know that God is for us because when he foreknew us, he predestinated us, and he promised you and I future glory. Look in verse 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son though he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, you and I know if he is for us, if God is on our side, and he is, then there is no enemy that is so great that can defeat us. There is no enemy greater than God's power. There is no enemy that can defeat us because God is for us. There is no enemy that God cannot handle. There is no obstacle that God cannot overcome. There is no problem that you and I face that God cannot deal with. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now the word if there in verse 31, what should we say then to those, these things, if God be for us? You know, if to us sounds like there's a possibility. This is a you know, if God be for us. But the, the Greek word has the power of since. Since God be for us, Paul is stating a fact. God is for us. If you're saved tonight, God is on your side. Since God is for us, who can be against us? There's no doubt here. The conclusion is obvious, isn't it? God is for us. Therefore, no one can be against us. 
As believers, we need to enter each new day realizing this fact, that God is for us. That no matter what obstacle we face, no matter what trial we encounter, no matter what difficulty we come across, no matter what opposition we may face, remember this, God is for us. And because God is for us, no one can stand against us. There is no need to fear. Because our loving God desires only the best for us as his children. And even if we must go through trials to receive his best, we need to realize that God is putting us through those trials for his glory and for our best. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil to give you an expected end. Your God does not think evil for us. God is not against us, folks. God is not seeking to destroy us. God is not seeking to cause our life a misery. God is not seeking to cause problems for us. God is for us. God wants you and I to have the very best that he has on offer for us. God loves us. God's for us. He's not against us. But those who are against us cannot stand because God is for us. God is on our side. No one can break that relationship. No one can destroy us. No matter what the attacks are, God will not allow anything to stop us from being eternally secure. Go with me to John chapter 10, please. Classic passage that we all know well. John chapter 10 and verse 27, we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Here's God's promise to us. The Lord Jesus Christ says that he gives unto us eternal life. He says that we shall never perish and that no man is able to pluck them out of his hand and no one is able to pluck them out of the Father's hand. His hand's in the Father's hand and no one can pluck us out. Our relationship to God is eternally secure. There is no opposition that can stop you and I from reaching glory there is no opposition to stop you and I from seeing God's will done in our lives. God is for us, no matter what is against us. The truth is we cannot be separated from Christ because firstly, God is for us. Secondly, we cannot be separated from God, from Christ, because Christ died for us. Look in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give you, give us all things? In verse 31, we see divine protection. In verse 32, we see divine provision. And what a provision is this. You know, God proves his care for you and I. When we read here in verse 32 that he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. The argument here is from the lesser to the greater. The point that he's making is this. If when we were sinners, 
God gave us his very best. Now that we are God's children, will he not give us all that we need? You see, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the reality. That's the fact. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God sent his son to die for us, in that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God was willing to give his very best, his only begotten son, so that sinners like you and I could be saved, now that we're saved, surely God will give us all that we need. And that's the second part of the verse. He says, how shall he not with him also freely give you all things? If God sent his son to die for us, surely you and I can trust him to keep us. Look in Philippians, please, chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What provision. Here it is, God sent his son to die for us upon the cross of Calvary while we were sinners. And the Lord now says to us, okay, so since I did that for you as sinners, surely now that you are saved, you're my children, I will give you all that you need. In fact, I will fulfill that which I've started in you. I'll bring it to pass. You know, this promise that God gives to us is based upon the unspeakable gift. That unspeakable gift that Jesus Christ died for you and I. When you and I contemplate that, we should have no concern that God will do what's best for us now that we are saved. Look at 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You know, you and I ought to be able to say that the same as Paul. I know whom I have believed. And because of that, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I've committed my eternal destiny to him. And I am persuaded that he is able to do what he promised to me. You know, Jesus used the same argument back in Matthew chapter 6. Let's go there, please. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than, raiment, uh, more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto your stature? 
And why take ye thought for the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which, is today, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Take, now therefore take no thought, saying what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, or wherewithal ye shall be clothed. For after all these things do this Gentile seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth, that ye have need of these things, of all these things. What a promise. Because God sent his son to die for us on the cross of Calvary, he did that while we were sinners, you and I can guarantee now that much more so will he look after us and will sustain us and will ensure that you and I make it all the way to glory. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because Christ died for us. Surely he will care for us. You see, God deals with you and I on the basis of Calvary, on the basis of grace. He doesn't deal with you and I on the basis of law. He doesn't deal with you and I on the basis of what we do and what we don't do. He deals with you and I on the basis of Calvary. And because of Calvary's love, God will indeed take care of his children and will ensure that you and I cannot be separated from his love. It deals with us on the basis of what Christ did for us, not upon our feelings. We cannot be separated from him because he deals with us based upon Calvary's love. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? He doesn't deal with me based upon my feelings or my behavior or my actions. He deals with me based upon Calvary's love, what Christ did for me on Calvary. Because I place my faith and trust in him, God my Father will supply my needs and will ensure that I make it to glory because of Calvary's love. We cannot be separated from Christ because, firstly, God is for us. Secondly, Christ died for us. But thirdly, because God has justified us. Look in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect is God that justifieth. In Romans 8.33, Paul asks, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Or to put it another way, who shall bring an accusation against the elect of God? Who shall bring an accusation against God's children, against born-again believers? And the answer to that is this. He says, it is God that justifieth. In other words, if you have an accusation against a believer, take it to God. You see, God's the one who's declared you and I righteous. Therefore, if you have an accusation against the righteous, against those who are declared righteous, take it to God because he's the one who has declared us righteous. We stand in his righteousness. We stand in the imputed righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousnesses, but in the imputed righteousness of Christ. We've been declared righteous. We're justified. And so the question here is, if you have an accusation against the believer, take it to God. For he's the one responsible 
for the individual's justification. Now think about that. You know, Satan cannot bring a condemning accusation against us because God has justified us. The devil can go and accuse us before the throne of God day and night. And you know what he says? Justified. But what about justified? But didn't you see what they just did? Justified. You and I can't, the devil cannot bring an accusation before the throne of God about you and I. Why? Because God has justified us. God declared us righteous. He knows what a sinner we are. He knows how unrighteous we are. He knows our way. He knows our frame. He knows our behavior. And yet he justified us and no one can bring an accusation against us because God justified us. You know, Satan would love to accuse us. Look in Revelation, please, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Revelation 12.10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Saint would love to accuse us to God. In fact, according to Revelation, he does it day and night. According to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we have the picture there of the same thing. He accuses us before the throne of God. But we stand righteous in Christ. And in order for you and I to be declared unrighteous, God would have to accept the accusation. But God is not going to accuse you and I because he's the one who justifies us. You see, for God to accuse us of something would mean that salvation is a failure. If there's any possibility that an accusation brought before the throne of God could be accepted by God, and then God accused you and I as believers of that thing, then the salvation he offered to you and I, the justification he brought for you and I, bought for you and I through Calvary is a failure. So no matter what Satan may say, or what others may say to accuse us, you and I can never lose our salvation, because God justifies us. You see, the only person who could take us back to court, the only person who could accuse us, is God. And God's not going to do that. God will not do that, for he would have to reject the sacrificial sacrifice of Christ upon Calvary. He'd have to reject Christ's offering for you and I. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the propitiation, he is the satisfaction for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. For you and I to lose our salvation would mean that God would have to say it was not satisfactory. Christ did not propitiate for them. And God's never going to do that. Because based upon the sacrificial death of Christ on Calvary, God declared you and I righteous. He justified us. And you know, understanding the meaning of justification 
brings peace to our hearts. When God declares the believing sinner righteous, that declaration never changes. We observe that in John chapter 10. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And then he says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. You ever thought of those words? He gives unto us eternal life. How long is eternal life? It's eternal. never ends. But just in case you and I didn't get it, he says, and we shall never perish. And in the Greek, that's a double negative. No, never shall we perish. It's like having a, you know, a, the, you know you have 9.999 with a dot above it, meaning it goes on forever. That's the double negative in Greek. It means that we shall never, ever, 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 and give as many never as you like, perish. Why? Because we're in the Savior's hand, the Savior's hand is in the Father's hand, and no man can pluck us out. You see, it's God that justifies us. God's declared us righteous, and as a signed, sealed, and delivered thing, nothing can break that relationship. That Christian experience changed from day to day. You and I live... Some days victoriously, some days we fail, and some moments by moment we live victoriously, for moment by moment we fail. That changes, but our justification never changes. And all may seek to accuse us, but no one can condemn us. We may accuse ourselves, but God will never take us to court, and God will never accuse us because he has declared us Righteous. Jesus already paid the penalty. We're secure in him. We're secure because we are justified. Look in 1 John, please. 1 John chapter 5. And verse 11. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He writes these things that we might believe, uh, that we might know that we have eternal life if we believed on the Son of God. It's a fact. We cannot be separated from Christ. Firstly, because God is for us. Secondly, because Christ died for us. Thirdly, because God has justified us. Fourthly, because Christ intercedes for us. Look at verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Paul asks, who is he that condemns? And, and, and in a sense, what he answers this, he says, it's pointless to condemn believers. It's a pointless exercise. Because you see, Christ died, is risen, and now he intercedes on our behalf. So who is going to go before the throne of grace to condemn us when Christ is standing there Interceding for us. It's like a wonderful image of a courtroom here. You know, God the Father is on the throne, 
Satan comes to accuse us and he says, haven't you seen what Nigel Davies just did and Christ said, paid for? But don't you see what he's up to? Surely he needs to be condemned and Christ says, died for him. He intercedes on our behalf. He's standing there saying, I died for him. I paid for that. Paid for, justified, done. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Any condemning information has no grounds of being accepted. There's plenty of reason, plenty of things that could be said to condemn us, isn't there? I mean, honestly speaking, if you, if you and I were honest, if you and I were to be in that courtroom and Satan stood up and started to list off the things that were condemning us, we would have to say, yeah, yeah, did that, did that, guilty, guilty. The wonderful thing is, though, that Jesus Christ is the one who died for us. The blood has blotted out. Wiped out, washed away all the writing of ordinances against us. Look in Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13. Colossians 2, 13. Then you've been dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, the writing of ordinances here has in mind a list of our crimes or our moral debt before God, a debt that you and I cannot pay. Well, the wonderful news is that the debt has been paid by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrected Lord has secured our victory. He secured victory over sin and over death, and when you and I placed our faith and trust in him, the victory was ours. Who is he that condemneth? Well, that's not the question, because Christ has died. Yea, he's risen again. And now he's interceding on our behalf. The resurrection of Christ secures the victory of sin and death. Now he is the divine intercessor. We're safe from accusation because of Christ. Now Christ is not condemning us. He represents us before the throne of God. He's interceding for us. He's pleading our case before the throne. And as our high priest, he can give us the grace that we need to overcome temptation and defeat the enemy. And as our advocate, he can forgive our sins and restore our fellowship with God. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Paul hindered at this ministry back in 
Romans chapter 5, let's go back there. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only saved by his death, but you and I are now saved by his life. He's interceding for us. He's representing you and I before the throne of God, making sure that you and I are never condemned. That we are eternally secure because he stands and intercedes for us. He pleads our case. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Christ is standing there pleading my case before the throne. Declaring I died for him. That's paid for. If it was possible for God to condemn us, and it's not because we've already seen that in this passage, okay? If it was possible for God to condemn us, Christ makes sure that he won't. That's how secure this is. We've just been told that God cannot condemn us. God doesn't condemn us. Because God justified us, he declared us righteous. But even if God could condemn us, Christ is standing there making sure that he doesn't condemn us. It's as though, you know, here in this passage, if you and I have got any doubts about our eternal security, it's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer to make sure you and I understand that we are saved eternally. We cannot be separated from Christ because God is for us. We cannot be separated from Christ because Christ died for us. We cannot be separated from Christ because God is the one who justified us. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ because Christ intercedes for us. And lastly, we cannot be separated from Christ because Christ loves us. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counting as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8, 31 to 34, Paul deals with the fact that God cannot fail us. We're secure because God has justified us. We're secure because Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Now he asks the question, what happens if we fail God? As one commentator put it, what if some trial or temptation comes our way and we fail? Cannot that separate us? Yes, yeah, true, God will not fail us and true, Christ will intercede for us and no one can make an accusation for us before God, but surely what happens if I mess up? Maybe God will never condemn me, but can I jump out of salvation? Can't I stop being safe? Well, in Romans 8, 35 to 37, the apostle deals with this problem and explains that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He starts out with the word who. 
The word who actually is the word what. So just think of anything, anything you can think of. What is it that you think can separate you from the love of Christ? Because it can't. The idea is that no matter what happens, no matter what, what happens in our lives, this side of glory, no matter what happens, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No matter what happens, we are secure. And if possible, we are more secure every day that we're saved. Look at Romans 8.36. He says this. Uh, sorry, verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perils? As written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Here he explains that persecutions will be natural for the believer. That you and I will go through suffering. You and I will go through trials. You and I will go through difficulties for Christ's sake. But none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Indeed it's written for Thy sake, we are killed all day long. We are suffering. We are accounted sheep for the slaughter. We are going through trials, but this cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when all men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Persecution can't separate us. Trials can't separate us. Instead of separating us, these things assure us that we have a closer relationship with the Lord. We're assured that he is close to us. When you and I go through trials, when you and I go through tribulation, when you and I go through difficulties, when you and I suffer persecution, at those times he is closer to us than ever before. So in verse 37, he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The phrase more than conquerors is we're super conquerors. When you and I go through all of these things as believers, we are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. Victory is ours. He gives us victory and he gives us more victory. You and I don't need to fear life or death things present, things to come, because Jesus Christ loves us and he gives us the victory. Now we need to understand that this promise does not come with conditions. None of this says, if you do this, then I will do this. Do you realize that? This passage is not a promise with conditions. This is absolute promise to all believers unconditionally nothing can separate us from the love of Christ nothing 
tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. In all of these things, you and I are more than conquerors. Let's secure in Christ an established fact. And you and I can claim it for ourselves because we're in Christ. Nothing can separate us from his love. Now, just in case, somebody somewhere has found something that Paul didn't mention this list and says, aha, but he didn't say this. Notice what the apostle responds in verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, and just in case you haven't got it yet, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Got it? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We cannot separate ourselves from the love of God because we're included in the any other creature. He leaves nothing unmentioned here. He leaves you and I no doubt that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The truth is that we cannot lose our salvation. And for that we need to praise the Lord. Even if you and I wanted to get out of salvation, even if by some bizarre rationale we want to, and I have talked to people who say, yes, but I can jump out of God's hand. And I think I usually say to them, why would you want to? I, I don't understand that, but they think you can lose your salvation because you can jump out. Well, sorry, we cannot for nothing, nothing, no one separate us from the love of Christ. What a glorious promise that we have in security in Christ. And you know the wonderful truths contained in these last verses in this chapter. In fact, indeed the things contained in this chapter are exquisite. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. Beloved, if we haven't figured out yet that we're eternally secure through faith in Jesus Christ, then we haven't understand this chapter. Because this chapter is all about the fact that you and I are saved by grace through faith. And because we're saved by grace through faith, we are secure in Him for eternity. And for that, we can praise Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for this wonderful chapter, Romans chapter 8. And Lord, we thank you for these wonderful closing verses that make it absolutely, abundantly clear that we cannot lose our salvation, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Father, may we just... Rejoice in that fact. May we leave tonight giving thanks unto you for eternal salvation. May we realize, Father God, that no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what accusation can be made against us, no matter what trial we face, no matter what mistakes we might make along the way, nothing separates us from your love. 
because Christ died for us. Father, we thank you there is no condemnation and there is no separation. Commend your word to our hearts this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.